Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Oh, what? So, hello, everybody. I guess we're on the air. Uh, so, hello and welcome to everybody to uh, today's program uh, from Pituitary World News. Today, for the first time, we're broadcasting from the same studio, Lewis. So, how are you? I said, I'm, I'm, we've just been chatting here for 10 minutes. Yeah, I'm doing very well. It's good to have you here in San Rafael so that we can actually be together instead of uh, on Zoom. 50 miles away on Zoom, right? Yeah, it's nice and hot in Northern California these days. Unusual heat, but I think the whole country is going through that, so we won't complain that much. Yeah, it's too hot. Uh, I, I came to an interesting realization this week, though, is I think the building codes here are different than they are elsewhere in the United States. I remember living in the South where it would get just as hot as it is today and would be even complicated by the humidity, but your air conditioner could keep up with it and maintain a nice, comfortable inside temperature here. After about noon, the air conditioner fails and the temperature in the house just continues to rise. It'll still keep it cooler than it is outside, but it's not the experience I had growing up in the South where air conditioners actually worked. And I surmise that it's that the, the it's very unusual to have temperatures like this out here and the building codes are different. You don't have to insulate enough dirt to prevent the winter cold from getting in uh out here as you do back east and and in the northeast uh, nor do you have to have the insulation to keep the cold in when it's hot outside so i think we just fail in our building codes and i think the other thing is interesting is that places that typically you wouldn't need you wouldn't have needed air conditioning in the since you know since the climate is shifting so much and it's so much warmer than it used to be I remember when we lived in Seattle, I don't think anybody had air conditioning in Seattle. And today when you get 80, 90 degrees in Seattle, almost 100, several weeks, that's which is totally unusual. People don't know what to do because yeah, there's so many so many homes that, have, that never needed air conditioning before. Yeah, exactly. This home did not have air conditioning uh, when I bought it in October. So I had that put in over the winter to be ready for the summer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're finding that... Uh, uh, I, I think the walls just aren't thick enough or the insulation is not rated to the level to help the air conditioner do its job. But I think the prior owner never needed it. It probably is related to climate change and other factors that are uh, bringing the, the hotter summers to the Bay Area than we uh, previously had. Yeah. Of course, summer here is September. Uh, June, July, and August are pretty cool with the fog. Uh, summer really, We really start to heat up in September and through about the first half of October. Yeah, the coldest place I've ever been was San Francisco in the summer. Or yeah, that, I think Mark Twain something like that. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny. There are two two quotes that I like. One of them, I think Twain said that the coldest winter I ever spent was summer in San Francisco. That's right. That's exactly. And that. then another one. There were two, I read this in an old book about you know California in eighteen hundreds where two gentlemen were standing on the the shores of San Francisco looking over the bay at the docks and. And one of them said, uh, fine summer weather we're having. And uh, the other said, yeah, not bad for February. <laughs> <laughs> I know the weather is fantastic in the, in the winter, particularly on the, on the coast. Yeah, we're very fortunate. Yeah. It was 107 degrees here on, on Labor Day. And uh, I decided to go sailing and went out in the ocean. I was literally about eight miles as the crow flies, as they say. Yeah from my home and it was about 58 to 60 degrees on the water in the Pacific Ocean. That's, a, that's uh, incredible. So I, I needed that uh, uh, 40, 45, almost 50 degree temperature drop to be able to feel comfortable. Yeah. I had a little bit of a sunburn or at least a wind burn because I had on a lot of sunscreen, but uh, it was nice to find a, a quick respite to yeah. that uh, well, weather. In the, I remember we live, when we lived in the East Bay, which about you know, 10, 15, 20 miles east of the bay, and you could cross the coastal with you know the, the Oakland Hills mm -hmm. into the city. It'd be a hundred and degrees on one side and seventy on the other side. Yeah, and it was just like this natural air conditioning that the San Francisco Bay over ever always provided. You know, just a uh, like a, its own microclimate. 
it's really incredible. Yeah, we're fortunate in many ways, so we try not to complain too much. But I, I don't know many people that would tolerate 100 degree weather without saying something about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. so we'll all get through it uh, yeah. together, right? Exactly, so. exactly. And hopefully, we can do a few things to mitigate some of this change, weather change. I hope so too. So, um, what I thought we would start our conversation with uh, today with uh, some interesting observations that we've been um, uh, noticing, particularly with social media. And we, have, we are preparing a few articles that we can encourage everybody to read and comment on and respond. But I think the basic issue is that there's been so many changes and issues with Facebook, not only with misinformation and and uh, disinformation, but also with the way they change their algorithms. And I remember when we first started publishing in 2014 and 2015, we would pretty much reach everybody that was following us on Facebook. And then the 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 uh, sharing of the of the uh, of the material and of the articles would would generate a lot more traffic from social media. I remember that. I remember that too. And I remember we used to post a podcast, and within twenty four hours, we maybe had two thousand five hundred people who'd reviewed it. Now yeah. it would be twenty people. Yes, it's yeah. it's incredible. So what's happened, as far as we can tell? Well, first, you know, Facebook is changing constantly the algorithm. So the fact that uh, we have you know thousands and thousands of people following us yeah, on over Facebook, 6,000, over six thousand, doesn't mean that. <laughs> It's every everybody sees the uh, the 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 content, or you know, more accurately, Facebook doesn't show the content in their feed. So we've you know our, our traffic has declined from Facebook, but it has increased from from organic searches. Mm -hmm. So we get in in the aggregate, we get a lot more people than we used to looking at the content. But the issue for me is, and I think you and I have talked about this, is how many people are missing the the content when it's relevant if she, if Facebook decides not to show it? Yeah, it's really interesting because we publish so many things that are of interest, um, whether it be the podcasts or articles or links or whatever, that I think are directly applicable to people's health care, whether it related to pituitary disorders or other things. We really want people to be able to see that mm -hmm. and, to, and to be able to learn something and then further their education through their own research work. Yeah. And it's almost like people who have liked us or followed us have been denied that opportunity because of the way Facebook is limiting sharing. And, and what we see that you folks don't see is they want us to pay money to be able to get that information out. To Precisely. Us. They ask us to pay money to boost our posts so that we can have more people see it. Yeah, which we I think you know in terms of whether that is a good idea or not, it, you know it makes I don't like doing it, but it makes sense. We haven't yet, but it makes sense if you if they deliver the audience, they say they deliver, but it's difficult to tell if if you're actually getting the people that they say you would get if yeah. you pay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm a little concerned that they might just send it to a click farm where they have people whose job is to click on. Click on things yeah. that come to their page. And yeah. we don't want that. We want to engage people who have diseases and disorders of the pituitary gland and yeah. anybody else who's interested who's related to them yeah. or their healthcare providers yeah. or whatever, and not just simply a click farm somewhere. And we don't mind paying the money to get it to people. We don't know that our audience is going to hear. What I, we have that's to exactly the point. I think you're absolutely right there. And I don't think Facebook needs to get money off of this either. I think know? they have enough. I think they have enough money. <laughs> Go look, go look at their big campus well, in uh, Menlo Park. It's pretty impressive. You know, yeah, they've, yeah. They've made a lot of money. Yeah, so at the very least, don't take advantage of poor little nonprofits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, help us out. We're trying to help people. Yeah. Help us what out. what brought what brought this home for me was, I, I I don't know. Maybe it was at February or March. We did a mental health roundtable with Linda Rio and Don Heron. It was fantastic roundtable before we had started the live shows. And I got so many comments afterwards from people saying how we didn't hear this, you know, we just saw it or somebody shared it. We didn't get the invite for the link that we had posted through social media. So I, I'm, that, that's when it just came home to me saying, well, wait a minute, 
we're not reaching everybody through Facebook that we used mm -hmm. to reach. So um, the, the one thing we want to do is encourage you, if you're not seeing, we, we publish one or two articles a week on average, and maybe a podcast every week. Yeah, the the live ver the recorded version of the live show live show will be published as a podcast. But I would encourage you, if you want to hear from us and you want to hear what we're doing, to subscribe to the, the the site. We don't need your all we need is an email. We don't do anything with that information. You will not be getting anything other than an email when the when the new article hits uh, is published. Yeah, as a subscriber myself, I can say that's all you'll receive is whenever we publish yeah. something on Patricia World News, you'll hear about that. And I think it really is a more organic way to hear from us uh, rather than checking your Facebook whenever you check it and, and where you're more likely to miss what's posted if yeah. they did share it yeah. with you. Or decide or whatever Facebook decides that you should be seeing this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so not all the information that we publish will be relevant to everybody. But uh, anyway, I think um, we urge you to do that. And uh, uh, there's, a, there's a subscribe button on the, on the website. All you have to do is enter your email, and it goes into our database. And then we have a, a very strict policy with not sharing any, any information that we get. And that is in our processes and procedures on the site as well. So, And with all of that said, I'm still surprised at the sheer numbers of people who actually access our information. Probably they are doing it through their Google searches where they look up a topic or whatever. And we have search engine optimization that's allowed us to be visible on the net when yeah. people search, say, acromegaly or uh, pigvisimon or something like that. So that's really great. Yeah, uh, these these uh, radio shows are listened to probably by five hundred or more people, which is tremendous. Uh, we'd like to reach more people just so that folks can be informed and participate more informed uh, in their healthcare with regards to their uh, their treating physicians. Yeah, and and you know, like we've said before, we like we like these programs to be two way conversations and and encourage you to to call in with questions or send us. As a matter of fact, we're going to put a survey on next week to ask uh, our audience for ideas on what they'd like to hear. And at the same time, uh, maybe a way to do this is to ask people to send us the questions in advance so we can discuss uh, some things as well. So uh, that's in the works and keep an eye out for that. Yeah, Facebook's an interesting place. Jorge and I have discussed some of my issues and concerns with it. I, I had an experience uh, just the other day where I participated in a group of uh, endocrinologists on Facebook, several thousand people, and uh, and it's pretty good. Most of the time it's about medical things, but sometimes people put a joke or complain about something to do with uh, insurance companies or what have you. And uh, it's not unusual that someone will tag my name to answer a, a medical question that some other doctor asks. If, if one of the physicians reading that post thinks that I might be an appropriate person, given my experience, to, to answer a question, they'll tag me. And I'll, I'll usually re, uh, look into that and see where I've been tagged, read the original <laughs> posting, and then comment as uh, necessary. And it was really curious. I had a, a, an opportunity to make a comment not long ago, and um, one of the other physicians started making negative, rude comments about what I had to say. And uh, I, I, I decided to look at the history that I had had on Facebook with this person, because I remembered her name and that she had said some negative things in the past. Uh, and while I, while I was in the middle of looking that up, she made another rude comment. And then I saw that every time someone had tagged me, that I'd given an answer to some other person's uh, uh, patient's uh, medical question, she would always write something negative. So I, I decided, how am I going to handle this? I just blocked her. <laughs> but the same That's thing. That's the easiest. Yeah. The, so she, if she did not interest in what I have to say and is always going to disagree, she doesn't get to hear what I have to say now, which yeah. is the right, right way to handle that. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is I encounter that sometimes on the patient groups. And I've, you know, it's curious that a patient will write something. I'll be tagged. I'll answer a question. Then some other patient jumps in and uh, you know, writes angry faces and, and makes rude comments and things like that. And I have that happen so many times. And many times these these people are uninformed. They don't know me from 
from the man on the street, uh, but they're rude. And, uh, and unfortunately, I think that some of the, the folks who moderate these patient groups don't, don't police that very well. Uh, so I, I have pulled out of all the patient groups on Facebook, uh, and probably the best way to stay in touch and to write me if you have questions about your health, that maybe I can help you find a doctor or to answer a question that you might have that your physician can't find is to follow us on Pituitary World News. So that's yeah. another reason to, to do so. I should mention that there's, you know, a few groups that do a very good job with, with pulling the, the shenanigans, I guess, from sometimes. Absolutely, you know, there, and there I've are. seen it with uh, some of the acromegaly and Cushing groups, the ones that are run really well, do yeah. do really well with yeah, that. Yeah, the, the acromegaly but, and the diabetes insipidus groups are my two favorite yeah. groups, but I I've had problems in both of those. I thought you know they can reach me some other way. Yeah, I want to be helpful. I want to be available to people, but sure. I can only take so much. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing that that that's so the, the thing that is so concerning is that there's so much to learn from from discussion, and I would guess with other physicians it's even more critical. Yeah. Because that's how you every you know you said 150 people in one room is what acromegaly patients in one room is 150 different disease states, exactly. and if each person is different, and if you don't have the ability to talk to one another about your experiences, mm -hmm. there's very little learning that goes on. Yeah. You exactly. just get set in your ways and go, well, you know, that's never happened before. You know, you would never know unless you have a discussion. I, uh, I think so. part of being an adult is to be able to respectfully disagree agree. On, on topics. And no, no, no two patients are alike. No two patients should be treated alike. No two doctors think alike. Yeah. Uh, you're going to get different answers from different sorts of people, but, it's interesting. The one that really tipped me over was a woman that uh, I had written something that probably 20 other people had written or agreed with or agreed with me. And she put angry faces on everybody's comments that were in agreement. It's like, this person should leave yeah. the group, not me. She's trying uh, to learn. Yeah. Yeah. But she clearly, some people don't uh, behave like adults and, and don't recognize that it's possible to respectfully disagree well, yeah. and to be able to keep your, keep quiet about it if necessary instead yeah. of making a scene. I think you have that, you know, so many aspects of life today from from politics to what to have to dinner for dinner. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> everything, everything becomes a, a, uh, a huge discussion when I mean it's it's pretty interesting. Maybe COVID had something to do with it psychologically. And, it might have. Uh, you know, yeah. we're 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 in this heightened state of of I don't know, not anger, I don't think, but just at least yeah, uh, maybe maybe anger, maybe over informed. Yeah. Uh, maybe tired, fatigued, yeah. tired of working from home or tired of not being able to go out or too much whatever. Zoom. Too much Zoom, too much time in front of social media and, and computers for lots of different things. And yeah. and I think people do uh, forget the basic methods and ways of effective communication. Yeah. And it gets lost in social media. This is technology, maybe. Maybe it's the way we're going. Maybe it's the future. Uh, you know, I think I was talking to a friend of mine. It's so, so difficult to tell because we're in such a transition between no technology to not technology to hyper technology, mm -hmm. that we're learning how to live with technology that it's advancing at a much rapid pace and we're able to interpret it or understand it. And that creates, I think, a lot of angst. Yeah, well, you, you were talking earlier today about your automobile and how um, it can sense when you're not looking at the road. Yes. It will tell you to look at the road. I'm thinking like, yes. Keep your eyes on the road, it says. I, it, it's scary because I think that they may send that information to the insurance company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jorge Fascinetti, like his... Took, like, off his yeah. took off his eyes from the road 15 yeah. times today. Exactly. <laughs> Higher insurance premiums for you. Yeah, well, this, uh, yeah. well they wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised the way people are using data today. So. Well, there was a, the last thing I'll say about this is there was a funny joke on Facebook of all places the other day, and it was about this whole uh, thing in California where... Um, in 2034, we're supposed to not be able to sell any new cars that have uh, gasoline, gasoline power. Yeah. have to be electric powered. And someone, uh, give, given the connection and Big Brother is watching, and you, know, you can talk about finding a winter coat uh, to your to your partner, and then hours later, Facebook's sending you advertisements for winter coats. 
So the joke was about the fact that it said that, uh, you know, you get in your car to start it and the warning comes up on the big computer screen for the electric vehicle that says, uh, uh, your vehicle will not start because of your behavior on social media. <laughs> so it's like, or something like that, something yeah. to that effect. That's funny. But it's like, yeah, it's not far from that. No, like, no. Yeah. And the thing that's most frustrating, I think sad, for, in my opinion, when I look at it is, everybody has such such high expectations and Facebook or any, some other social media channels did, did such an amazing thing to get people together to connect and, and it's it's gone south in many ways. You know, that, that whole idea of now the world can come together, we are understanding each other more. No, it's just gotten, I think, way the other way. Maybe it's a transition yeah. that we don't understand, but hopefully the good things will stay and the bad things will go away, you know, in social media. But I think right now we're dealing with some, some challenges, no doubt, in that area. Yeah, I think it has to do with the, the fact that technology moves faster than human uh, development or evolution will, if you will. It doesn't matter whether you believe in creationism or evolution. Uh, mankind has long, we, we, we've not used our brains as much now as we used to. Yeah. We're using them less and less with each generation as technology takes over. Yeah. And um, I think that we, we need to keep in mind that we have to... Um, we have to exercise some of those basic instincts and basic things that we should be able to do. Yeah. Um, you know, people used to be able to track animals by smell and footprints and things like how many of us can do that now? Most people can't figure out which way the wind is blowing when they step outside. Yeah. But it used to be, uh, you know, a hundred years ago and certainly a thousand years ago, people were very in tune to those things and they could look at the night sky and figure out, you know, what time of year it was. Or yeah. What, where they where they were without having to do the the complicated celestial navigation that we do, they or ask Google, to, yeah, or ask Google, just know how to figure those things out. So, yeah. I think we're losing those things that our bodies and our brains were designed to do, and uh, if we don't uh, figure out ways to avoid losing more, who knows what the humans of the future are going to be like? I agree. I agree. All these yeah. things are being but selected against. And, it's it's a pretty interesting time with all of yeah. that going on. And so, it is real. I, I remember reading a story about uh, a, a, sub, a study that was done, I think it was in China, but I can't remember where, where kids there learn to use uh, smartphones at a very, very early age because they're common and that's where they're often produced and all of that. And this uh, neurologist and, and, a, and a neurosurgeon and I were having a conversation and they were telling about this article where they had read that and if you ask someone who doesn't grow up with a smartphone to point at the, at the bird in the tree, they will point with their index finger like most of us would. But they would talk to these little kids in China and say, point to the bird in the tree. You know, they show a picture and they would use their thumbs to point because they were using their the thumbs to text to uh, so that uh, they were even that the thumb was becoming the most important digit instead of the pointing finger. The pointing finger. finger. So, Interesting. Wow, that's yeah, pretty so, amazing. So technology does change the yeah. way our bodies work. And, and, and I think the problem is that we have no idea how, because of what you said, which is technology is moving faster than yeah. our capacity to our capacity. understand the changes. It's yeah. Facebook, I think it's a, the best example of that. I don't, yeah. think, I, don't think, I don't think Facebook has, and this may be unfair to say, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> I don't think the people that run Facebook have any idea the effect they're having on people. I agree. Uh, and, and the smart, you know, the people at Apple and, you know, Android or wherever they're making the smartphones, yeah. it used to be you could walk in a coffee shop, sit down and say hello to somebody. Yeah, no, Go in a coffee shop now, everybody's on a smartphone. In or the, whatever the device they you have. You can't go there for a social interaction and to meet someone interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even you go to the post office, it used to be you'd stand in line at the post office and strike up a conversation with the person either in front or behind you. Everybody's on their phone. Yeah. So you can, there's no social interaction no. Yeah. other than screen time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I think that's going to change our personalities and our communication abilities. Yeah, I think so too. At least to change it, you know, and who knows for if for the good or the bad. Who knows? I guess it'll, it'll change and that's it. That's yeah. progress and we'll have to deal with uh the, the, the bad parts of it. Um, I, ju I just hope that it gets a little more, um, at least more rules of yeah. social media, what they can and cannot do, 
of what people can and cannot do in social media and exactly. and the liability issue where it's just if you publish something that's untrue, then you should be liable for it. And I think that needs to change. I don't know what Congress is doing about it, but I know there has a lot of discussions on that. Just like a, like a, a network is responsible mm-hmm. for what they say and to prove that what they say is true. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, there needs to be some of that because otherwise it's a free for all. And it's it's impossible to to police or to you know to to manage. I guess would be a better word. So anyway, that's an interesting interesting discussion. And again, we urge you to. So I think our goal is obviously to get to our audience with as much information as we can. So we urge you to to hit that subscribe button for uh, PWN. So so. Let's let's talk about your week. You had an interesting week uh, with uh, patients and some interesting cases. Yeah, it was a lot of work. Uh, pituitary disease patients often have multiple problems and issues related to hormone deficiencies or excesses, tumors, consequences of treatment, etc. And I and I saw a couple of interesting, well, four or five interesting things today that I thought were worthy of discussion on our, our radio show and maybe future work as well. One of them was one of the last patients I saw today had started the visit very anxious about things, and she thought her tumor was back and that she was going to have to have surgery. Uh, But the thing is, is her tumor is not back. And uh, the reason she thought she was going to have to have surgery and her tumor is back is because of all her pituitary hormones were low. She has known hypopituitarism for at least five years or so. And uh, she doesn't uh, understand the caveats of interpretation of pituitary function tests. And uh, her response was, I think it's wrong for us to have access to all these labs when we don't know we're interpreting. I was trying to explain to her, most endocrinologists don't know how to interpret these tests. And I try to teach them. I try to teach neurosurgery residents and other doctors how to interpret pituitary function tests. And I certainly find that most of them never really truly learn how to to understand the, the, the little subtleties of yeah, the test this, results. Yeah. And that I didn't expect her to either, but I took the time to explain to her what the test meant and why. And uh, she she seemed to get it, but she says, I don't know that it's really in- important for you to tell me these things. She says, it's not important for me to see these lab results. I should sort of rely upon you to communicate to me what I need to know. And I said, I've had many patients just like you. They get uh, flustered with the results. They're frustrated about what they mean. They have to wait for the appointment to, to hear that, oh, these are what we expect in someone who has hypopituitarism, this pattern of abnormalities, mm-hmm. but we still have to check the results because they do mean something to me about whether residual pituitary function is worsening or not. And um, But it was two people this week who felt like uh, maybe this access that patients have to their labs since they're not skilled and don't have experience interpreting results, might be a dangerous thing. It created anxiety for two people. So you see, for example, a, a lab test that has low normal, which could be completely expected for, for a person yeah. that, that creates anxiety because you don't understand. I've, personally, I've seen that, yeah. where you go, oh, I wonder what that means. And then you, you learn what it means. You say, well, you know, based on your condition, it doesn't mean that much. And the other, the other thing I've seen is that if, if, if anybody's read a radiology report, they know that radiologists put a bunch of garbage in there that probably doesn't need to be there. About white matter changes or this or that, things that aren't really clinically relevant. And most of the time, neurologists are going to scratch their head about anyways and not do anything. Yeah. About. And they put it in there and it, it, it leads to anxiety and people are writing messages through my chart or calling for urgent appointments and things like that. Yeah for nothing whatsoever. And, and I've had patients say, I'm not looking at any more radiology reports. I'll, I'll trust you. And I know that all, a, lot of, a lot of doctors you can't trust and you have to sort of look at your own things. And I don't mind people looking because it generates discussion and provides yeah. me opportunities to teach. So I encourage my patients to look at their labs, but it was interesting this week to have a few people who, uh, at least two who, uh, and one, one last week about the MRI, uh, who felt like uh, the opportunity to look at those was not really uh, very useful to them and, and, and created a disturbance in their sleep and yeah. and their psyche for, for a few days. It's, uh, it's certainly a double-edged sword, no? Because yeah. you have so many good things about it, people that get involved in their disease and want to learn. Yeah. And on the other side, 
some of that because of the complexity of these things creates so much so much anxiety. It's just I would think that's a very difficult thing to deal with well, from, a, my, from a physician standpoint. Sure. My best example of why it's good for people to look at their charts happened when I was on faculty at Vanderbilt where I was doing the, not only the pituitary center, but also the endocrine cancers and things like that. And I had a, a patient referred to me by one of the internists and the patient had a cough. So the internist had done a CT scan of the chest and the radiology report said no findings on the CT scan of the chest to explain the cough. But in the body of the report, they had put that the patient had a three centimeter tumor in the thyroid. That wasn't in the impression. And the doctor wrote through the through the patient portal, hey, your chest CT is great. There's not a problem at all. And the patient said, uh, well, well, I saw my report. This, they couldn't see the film, so yeah. they see the report. What about that tumor in my thyroid? So then the internist, who's very good, said, oh, I didn't read the body. I just read the impression. Uh, let me refer you to my friend in endocrinology to take care of The patient comes to see me and do biopsy of thyroid cancer. Wow. So the patient's thyroid cancer was diagnosed because he read his yeah his report his report. So yeah. there is value to that absolutely. Uh, and uh, patients should question things that they don't understand. It's the role of the physician to help. Um, the radiologist is the one who really made the big mistake there because they should have put that in the final report so yeah. the physician would have seen it. Because we usually read the impression. I always read the whole body of the report, but more importantly, I look at my own scans. Sure. But, you know, I don't expect a, a general internist to know how to read a thyroid scan or pick up a thyroid nodule. Really, it was the burden was on the radiologist to put that in, mm -hmm. the, in the report. Fortunately, the patient did great, had no problems whatsoever, was cured of surgery, by surgery. Um, another uh, interesting thing that came up um, was I had a discussion with a patient today who was concerned uh, about the fact that the ACTH level was a little bit high after successful surgery for Cushing's. And I think the patient might have residual disease. And, and I referred her back to my surgeon who operated, who said, no, I think she's free. And I saw the patient today after the visit with the surgeon. I says, you know, I kind of disagree with him. I think that you're at a high risk for recurrent disease. I don't know if we're talking about a year or five years or 10, but your biochemistry is not what it was supposed to be if you're someone who's cured of Cushing's. And she was a little bit um, unsure about my approach. And I said, my approach is to look out for you and to prove that you don't have a recurrence. Yeah. It's also to prove that if you have a recurrence, that we find it at the earliest time possible. So that's my job to do the surveillance. And she thought that was a very interesting role of physician because I think people think the doctor's role is to diagnose me and treat me. But our role is also to refute a diagnosis. If someone comes to us thinking they have something, but they don't, it's our it's our moral responsibility to say, you don't have this disease. Yeah. And um, if, uh, if someone has a disease or a treatment and their potential consequences or complications that might occur even years down the road, it's our role to expect they might develop those and to be on the lookout for it. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's uh, so it's like having a long term plan for a patient. Yeah, exactly. Where you say this is think that we may, may progress. That gives that gives you the ability to to become more preventive. No, it is, and it's exactly what a lot of people don't understand about pituitary disease. That any intervention can have a delayed consequence. And uh, I saw a patient today that speaks of that. She had Cushing's had surgery at another institution, wasn't cured, came to us, we gave radiotherapy to the residual tumor, and now she's under good control uh, with medical therapy, uh, but uh, her cortisol levels are right where they need to be, and she's doing extremely well. Uh, but she had the radiotherapy here in 2018, so now it's four years later. I've been following her pituitary functions every year it's a bit of a nuisance to her, maybe, mm -hmm. but uh, mainly to look and see whether or not she develops hypopituitarism, which can happen in 40% of cases after gamma knife radiosurgery. My job is to find it. Even though it's not there, I think it can develop. I have to watch it. So today we noticed for the first time that her TSH is a little high and her T4 level is finally low, which is the classic pattern of central hypothyroidism in a patient with pituitary disease who had radiation. Interesting. Ago. So you were expecting it. Yeah, I was expecting it sooner or later. I have to be on the watch for it. It's my job to find it when it happens and yeah. to find it sooner. A lot of physicians would have never followed it. She would have showed up another three or four years. 
really symptomatic, having gained a lot of weight. And I asked her, I said, are you having any tiredness? Well, yeah, kind of my stamina is down. Uh, how about weight gain? Yeah, I gained maybe five pounds. I didn't know if it was related to the Cushing's or if the dose of ketoconazole was fine. Yeah. Uh, and her dose was fine. It was the hypothyroidism, and she's probably going to feel a lot better when we get her started sure. on the thyroxin, which should start today. So, so I think you, you answered the question. I was wondering, as you were describing this, whether the physical, the, it's only something you can see by doing a lab. Exactly. There would be yeah. no no symptomatic, uh, there would be no symptoms of, of yeah. that early. Right. A, a primary endocrinologist or general internist would have said, yeah, all my patients have had tiredness today. Yeah, something else. But to me, I know the context of she had this treatment that can have this complication within 10 years. So I have to follow her for that. So yeah. I have to prove she doesn't get that by doing the tests. And if she does get it, I have to pick it up early and treat it. It's almost a test of early diagnosis, no? In yeah. anything where you say, I suspect this. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, so that's how I do my job. It's yeah. one of the things that I feel is important to do. And uh, when it when it talks about refuting a diagnosis, I participated in a medical conference this week, and there was a physician at another institution, and he was asked, "What are the biggest challenges you face in uh, evaluating patients with a particular disease state?" And he said, "The biggest challenges I have are in trying to convince people when it's time to stop testing." that they don't have, have the particular diagnosis. Yeah. He said people will see four or five, I'm the fifth endocrinologist they've seen, they've seen four or five people before me sometimes, and they come to me expecting an answer that's different than the ones that they've received from all the other endocrinologists. And, and I spend a lot of time convincing people you don't have a disease. And he felt that that was an important role is to be able to take a very pragmatic and dogmatic approach to depending on the patient, whether they need a pragmatic or dogmatic approach to sort of refuting a diagnosis that someone along the way suggested uh, and uh, to, to use uh, what we know about modern medicine and diagnosis that uh, uh, to, to tell patients when they don't have an illness. Yeah. We run into that as well for all pituitary conditions. I've seen people who uh, thought they had acromegaly but didn't, Cushing's thought they didn't. One lady had an MRI of the pituitary and had her head twisted sideways so one side of the pituitary looked bigger than the other and she wanted our surgeons to go in and shave it off so it was symmetrical oh. <laughs> and and was upset that I wasn't recommending neurosurgery so I sent her to one of the surgeons who agreed with me that you don't need cosmetic surgery on your pituitary but you spend a lot of time trying to convince people sometimes that they don't have what they might think oh, they need when you think I mean you know this is a tough question so but what do you think causes that? Because I don't can't, can't think of any reason why people would com, would convince themselves that they have something when not just one or two, but five or six. Mm -hmm. As they go, go, is it so obviously there's an emotional, mental health issue there that yeah. needs to be addressed? No, there's something. It may simply be a personality trait. You know, yeah, these are people. You know, if you look at my writing, obviously I don't care about my writing, but some people write so precisely that that's important to them. Yeah. I like to have a very clean room and office and house uh, with little clutter. Other people don't mind having clutter everywhere. So Me included, that now, as you see. Yeah, we're as all. You see my yeah, office. exactly. So we're all different there, and there's nothing wrong with that, no. but uh, some people want perfection. And. Um, yeah, uh, this person had had a number of other plastic surgery procedures and thought, I'll just get some work done on my pituitary, I guess. I don't know. But uh, that uh, that sense of uh, perfection uh, uh, was bleeding over into her MRI. And she'd simply had an MRI of the brain for a headache. And they commented that the pituitary was asymmetric. And I looked at the films and it's, well, this is asymmetric and this is asymmetric and this is asymmetric. And the reason is there's a parallax because your head was twisted, you know, and, uh, and uh, the, the, the cut was diagonal through something and straight, straight through. And you can all imagine. So the position of the head, basically. Yeah. So if you cut straight across a pipe, you're going to have a circle. If you yeah. cut a diagonal across a pipe, you're going to have an, uh, oval. an oval. So, you know, so. It, it looks different. Yeah. <laughs> and the oval that's closer to you sometimes looks bigger than the oval that's yeah, farther from optics, you. So, no? Yeah. So, uh, but it's interesting, you know, and uh, I think one of the important roles of a tertiary subspecialist, like a pituitary specialist, is to be able to. Uh, again, like we said, diagnose and treat disease, but also refute diseases and be aware of the potential complications of treatments and diseases so that you can proceed forward with uh, 
with uh, patient care. Yeah. Uh, so those were some interesting things. And yeah. then um, Very I, had interesting. A, I had another patient who, uh, and this kills me, and I know you know a lot about this, Jorge, so I want you to talk a lot about it, um, Has uh, with acromegaly. Mm-hmm. And she's been on uh, some of her for over two years, maybe two, uh, I don't know, maybe two and a half years now. I'd have to look at the chart to see. It's probably two and a half years or, or at least close to two years, slightly over two years. And has a, uh, an IGF-1 that's well controlled. We like her results. Uh, she said radiotherapy. We expect her to be able to come off the drug one of these days. We don't know when. Um, and just out of the blue, after about uh, maybe, let's say, two and a quarter years of therapy, um, her insurance company denies the, the referral, the, the uh, refill, uh, denies continued treatment, says that she needs to try a somatostatin analog. Uh, why? We don't know. I suspect it's pharmacoeconomics. I suspect they have a, an agreement with uh, drug companies to get the cheaper drug, the somatostatin analog, rather than the more expensive drug, pegvisimant or somavert, and they want her to change therapy. So we got someone who's doing perfectly well on treatment, no side effects, is happy, uh, doesn't like injections daily, but knows that that's part of the, the process to be healthy. Uh, and, the, and the insurance company says, oh, we want you to be on a different drug. We're not gonna fill that when your doctor has to prescribe this one. Yeah. I'm incensed by it because we're seeing this more often than not nowadays where the insurance company using either guidelines or protocols they develop with doctors they consult with are trying to make treatment decisions and stand in the way of what doctors and patients want to do together and, and require us to use the drugs that they want us to use so that they can save money. As it is, insurance companies spend a very small fraction of healthcare dollar premiums that come to them on healthcare. Yeah. 20 years ago, or maybe 25 years ago now, the, the number was about 19% of the dollars that were collected in premiums uh, from employers and, and employees were actually spent on actual healthcare. The other 81% was spent on administration and to pay shareholders, et cetera, nice which is things. unconscionable in my mind because yeah. we should oh, be paying for health care. Nobody be, talks about that. I know. You shouldn't be limiting what doctors and patients want to do after meeting behind closed doors to decide what's the best course of treatment for a patient. Furthermore, where, where do they come from recommending a drug that's efficacious in only 40% of people? Yeah. So there's a 60% chance she's going to fail therapy if we switch her. And there's a 50% chance that she's going to have intolerable gastrointestinal side effects if we switch her over. Uh, and uh, so we were talking about this today, and she was upset. And I had, I had in the back of my mind that she might have been treated with some acid analogs in the past. And she says, oh, yeah, when I was at Kaiser, I was treated with the Xanistat. Yeah. And she had horrible side effects. Yes. Yeah. So and already it, had and her pain. IGF-1 never normalized. So now we have enough information to go back to the company. Uh, and uh, say she's tried this class of drugs before, they didn't work, and she had intolerable side effects. So hopefully we can keep her on the sum of her. If she hadn't re- hadn't have done that, that was before she saw me yeah. as a new patient. If she hadn't have had that experience, I would have still done the appeal, uh, but we might not have won it. Yeah, uh, you know, I I usually use pretty strong language when it comes to the point of trying to appeal a decision like that, the pharmaceutical company is making, you know, accuse them of trying to practice medicine, which they're not supposed to do. Tell them that the patients will have their attorney contact them to discuss uh, uh, the, the appropriateness of their decision-making, et cetera. Um, but uh, fortunately I don't have to do that in this particular case That's because good. she had tried that medicine before she ever saw me. Uh, well, the, the unfortunate part is that you, you, I hear it from, particularly in acromegaly, I don't know why acromegaly is something, from the acromegaly community and the people that contact, you know, the group leaders there mm-hmm. to, because sometimes that's their only, because if the physician won't do the work mm-hmm. that you do for them, you know, or appeal it. So the only thing they have is that group of people that can say, no, let, let us yeah. help you get to that. To that appeal and appeal is so they sometimes patients don't know so i i think you know one of the things with access and as you know we've been doing quite a bit of research on it mm-hmm. and access the things that that affect access like prior authorizations and 
you know, costs of insurance and specialty pharmacies and, and, and PBMs and the cost of the drug itself and the distribution system and all of that, trying to understand how we can advocate for a better system. Mm-hmm. Now, where do we need to apply the pressure uh, for, the, for, for change? And where does the change going to, where does that noise that we can create as pituitary world news can, can create the most impact? Uh, well, we need to do something because yeah. nobody's happy. I'm not happy with the fact that though I'm a well-trained, highly trained, very well-experienced pituitary endocrinologist that a drug company refused, Couldn't tell you what to, how refused to do your my job. prescription was yeah. to tell me how to make decisions Yeah. after I've given considerable thought to the best individualized care possible. I don't treat people according to guidelines. I treat people according to what their needs are. Uh, after a discussion with the patient. And does guidelines play a big role into the decision of... It, it does because some of the early guidelines were biased and, and led people to think that somatostatin analogs were the best therapy ever. Uh, but now it's proved that they weren't as effective as we originally thought they were. They're good drugs when they work, Yeah, but they're not as but effective as they don't work for everybody. They don't work for everybody, high side effect profile, and you have to find another drug. And I like to individualize therapy instead of say, well, the guidelines say we should put you on this drug first. I never practice medicine that way. That's not using your brain. No. Uh, it's just simply having been smart enough to read the paper and follow the guidelines. It's not It's not using the art of medicine or one's experience or a patient preference and recognizing, like you said earlier, that each of those 150 patients is a different patient, has a different need, and should be treated individually, not as an en masse group of people coming with the disease. Thing. Yeah. Well, the fact that you have to risk a, a patient's health mm-hmm. that could get sicker because it is it, really a risk in the it, health. Of course, you know, it's yeah. a risk because somebody can develop uh, comorbidities and you know in short periods of time. I'm sure if you're in the wrong medication, yeah. it's not working for you. Yeah. Not not to speak of the mental and emotional health uh, yeah. aspect of it, and a change in their routine. You know, because this would involve. Getting giving a shot daily, which nobody wants to do, yeah. but you have to do to stay well. Yeah. To going somewhere to get your injection once yeah. once a month, and it which hurts like sounds hell. a lot better, but it is a bigger needle. And a, I would I'd be a terrible acromegalic patient because I wouldn't want to take any of these drugs. Yeah, yeah. But um, I have to use them so people can be well. And I'm sure that if I had to be well, I would I would adapt to it also. Yeah. But you know the doctors aren't happy. The patients aren't happy with all of this. I don't think the insurance. I don't think the drug companies are happy. You know, if you're on product A and some insurance company tells the doctor, product A has worked for two and a half years, but you have to use yeah. product B because we want, I don't think product A's drug company is going to be happy about that. Yeah. B would be ecstatic because they feel like they get preferred status. But yeah. all of this stuff needs to be resolved. One of the things I'd like to see it resolved for is we did an analysis in my practice about probably three years ago now, and I'm sure the numbers changed, but we... We took the time to, over a two-week period, figure out how much time each of us on the team spent on author, authoriz, authorizing medications for people with, with drug diseases. Yeah. And then we extrapolated that to the year, and we figured out we spent about $120,000 a year of personnel time. When you look at the, what people are making, the, the people that work for me, the nurses and the nurse practitioners and the authorization people, and the people in the specialty pharmacy who helped us with this, and my assistant, it's one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year we spend just to get drugs authorized. And it's probably now one hundred fifty thousand a year because we're seeing more patients than ever right now. Yeah, and uh, so one hundred fifty grand a year. That's just, that's just on prior authorizations. Well, prior prior authorizations and, and appeals to prove that patients need the need drug the that drug, we prescribe. Yeah. And I don't know why they can't say this is a pituitary center of excellence. Let it happen, you know, but they stand in the way. And the funny thing is, is if you talk to someone at the company, when they do the peer to peer review, I, as a pituitary endocrinologist, are, get, are put in front of a doctor to talk to who's usually a general internist yeah. or someone who's even family medicine, no longer practicing, but just doing reviews for insurance companies. Yeah. So they don't have any knowledge about this either, but they're the ones that really control the keys to the to the golden gate where you can pass through and get straight yeah. with the medicine that your doctor wants you to be treated with. So it's a terrible system. And I think we need an upwelling of patients and doctors and insurance company or, uh, and uh, pharmaceutical companies 
to sort of oppose what the insurance companies are dictating. To, I think these processes these create such an such an amazing anxiety on people when you have to every year wonder of your prior authorization or with the insurance company, like you say, yeah. have somebody that decides, well, why isn't this person on a somatostatin analog instead yeah. of big visament when big visament is working for three or four years. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's, and that for the patient has to be very, very anxious producing, anxiety producing. I see a lot of people a year who have hypopituitarism and they're suffering due to growth hormone deficiency and they come to me because they're seeking matters or tension and want to resolve the matter as to why they're not better. It's clearly their growth hormone deficiency. And I'll yeah. say, well, you need growth hormone. Well, my, my primary endocrinologist didn't want to treat me. Yeah. And uh, they said it was experimental. Well, it was approved by the FDA in around 1996, maybe. Uh, maybe 97. I can't remember exactly. So clearly it's not experimental. Yeah. Uh, we're using this. It's just that people have a, physicians have a cop out to not use it because of all this authorization stuff. Yeah. So I'm pretty confident based on the patients that I see, there are thousands of people out there uh, in the pituitary realm who have these diseases, who would benefit from growth hormone replacement, who aren't on it because of the high bar or the number of hurdles you have to cross to get a prescription through so a patient can yeah. start treatment. Uh, and it's really unfortunate that there are these, uh, if you will, roadblocks to treatment that are created by the system that, yeah, bureaucracy for bureaucracy. Yeah, the the bureaucracy of treatment. Yeah. I understand the reason for it because there would be a whole lot more people abusing growth hormone than need, that didn't need it. Yeah. But again, if it comes from a bona fide pituitary center, and uh, you know, you probably should give us a pass. Now, yeah. if it's coming from a small clinic in you know Southern California, the doctor's not an endocrinologist. Oversee that. Yeah, that's and where you put you put. That's your where attention. you put your energy and yeah. your attention. Yeah. Require them to authorize it. But well, uh, I think anything that creates less anxiety for patients is good. Uh, anxiety is people that are ill, you know, and, and they're anxious don't do as well. You know, if you have a chronic condition, and anxiety tends to make it worse. Absolutely. You know, so that's such a such a huge part of wellness. You know. I'm often asked, why do we do it? You know, if it's so much and, and one of the, one of the other physicians that works is why do you do this? Because it's important to me that my patients are well yeah. and, and that they're healthy and that they have, <laughs> if we're going to be a top level pituitary center, we have to do this. This is part of the job. It's mm -hmm. part of the deal. We have to get authorization for medications for Cushing's and acromegaly and growth hormone deficiency and anything else we have to do. Uh, even, even drugs that, uh, will improve uh, sperm production in men with hypogonadism. We have to we have to fight those battles on behalf of our patients. If we don't, we're failing. Uh, yeah. So I think of it as an important thing. I, I, I lost an appeal this week. Uh, first time I've lost an appeal ever. Uh, uh, maybe not ever, but certainly in the last five years, uh, I've lost an appeal. And we're going to have to put one patient on a drug that the insurance company has uh, required for Cushing's. Uh, much to my uh, uh, disappointment. Uh, that's terrible. And it was a situation where we could use a drug that's probably going to be 85% effective, but they want us to try first a drug that's going to be 27% effective, but causes diabetes 50% of the time. Now, how would you like your insurance company making those choices? Why, why, and why wouldn't they be liable for the health of the patient if it goes south that's what has to happen that's what people has to have happen. to be able to sue the insurance companies for 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 damage you gave me diabetes i, I got <laughs> diabetes i my the treatment of my cushing's delayed by six months for the doctor to try this out uh because we had to do what you said because you denied the prescription if more people would go after insurance companies, I think they would say, let's leave the practice of medicine to the, to doctors, the doctors and not, not bother with this anymore. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, but I'm furious about it because, you know, the, the, uh, the odds is that your patient will develop this. They're going to spend $50,000 to find out that my patient's not going to respond to treatment. That's the most foolish thing in the world yeah. to me. Yeah. That the insurance company is willing to spend 50 grand to be able to save money on a drug. Uh, and, and they're going to ask my patient to potentially have Cushing's that doesn't respond. 75 of 100 people are not going to respond to this drug. 
And those patients are going to have to have Cushing's until we can decide. Yeah. They're looking for relief of symptoms and signs. I try to fast track and get people on the best treatment that they can have that's going to result in the best response in the soonest amount of time. And insurance companies, oh, but we like this other drug because it's less expensive. I think we have to fix this problem. Yeah. Everybody is worried about who's going to be president. The presidents have nothing to do with this. No. Every, everybody's worried about who's going to win the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl has nothing to do with this. Yeah. Uh, whether you're going to have to buy an electric car in 10 years in California has nothing to do with this. This is important that we resolve this thing today yeah. uh, and not focus on who's going to, going to be elected president or win the Super Bowl or get an Oscar. You yeah, know, that's and that that's just sort of a commentary about no. I think it's America very, today. Yeah, but know? I think so, the, and the world. But yeah. I think we should we should mention uh, to the audience to to look out for because we are in the, working on and preparing quite a bit of content on access and explaining how it works and the the challenges and opportunities with it, and then ask people to get involved and and advocate to see if we can affect some of this change i'd yeah. love to put together a a a retreat that would involve uh key patient leaders um people like ourselves other influencers on social media yeah. um pharmaceutical companies Pairs, specialty yeah. pharmacies and then invite the insurance companies to come and sort of everybody present their side of the story so that people can start to communicate and understand one another. I think that's a great idea. Uh, I think and, we should. And, and, and somehow meet in the middle where we can simplify this process. The, the less amount of time that I spend solving these authorization problems, the more time I have to address real patient concerns yeah. Yeah. about... Uh, Hey, why am I having anxious and nervousness when on my thyroid hormone? You know, I can resolve real, real problems. The real if, quality of life. And issues. my staff who spend time on this can deal with real issues too. Yeah. You know? And we can practice better medicine if we can ease this administrative burden that we have on this oversight by insurance companies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we've got to, we've got to work together to do something. And we would encourage everybody out there listening to, try to help us uh, find some solutions to these problems and and agree this is a good arena to be an activist in, whether you're an activist about uh, women's rights or um, Black Lives Matter or any number of other uh, very reasonable things important to become an issues. activist in, other important issues. This is just as important, yeah. if not more important. No, it's critical. In the end, our, everybody's going to be on yeah. medicine that's going to require an authorization at some point in their life. Yeah. So we got we got to do this for society. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, stay tuned to, for that, uh, for that, for that, that, that content. Um, so, you know, the other thing that might be interesting is to hear uh, any of you or of your, uh, the, our audience, uh, examples and issues that they faced, they faced in their conditions with the access, and have they had any issues? If you share those with us, those stories would be great. So. Yeah, please do. Well, this has been a great discussion. Thanks Thank you. For, yeah, thanks for visiting today. And uh, yeah, I uh, think it's it's very helpful to to discuss some of these things that are the the stuff that keeps us up at night. No. Yeah, exactly. Thinking about right. it, and uh, that it's not it has. No easy solution until you get your set your mind to it. Exactly. So, and yeah, you know, they don't. You. you know, it's just the, practicing medicine is like having kids. The baby doesn't come out of the womb with an instruction manual. No. When I was in medical school, they teach you nothing about all of this stuff. Yeah. And this stuff changes on a monthly basis, yeah. if not a daily basis. Yeah. It's an evolving thing, and you have to sort of. Uh, put your feet in the fire and learn how to walk through it. And that's what we do as physicians on behalf of our patients. And uh, um, a lot of physicians aren't willing to do that. And uh, in some ways, I don't blame them. But uh, yeah. uh, the final thing I would say is that if you, if you find that you're not getting the care that you need because of issues like this, find a physician who might uh, be a little bit more open to Yeah, and, and let us know so we can amplify it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, absolutely. So well, this has been really interesting. Thank you. Uh, uh, again, uh, stay tuned for also, you know, we have some interesting um, guests coming up in the next weeks and months. 
So stay tuned for the for the announcements of those uh, of those for live talk. All right. All right. Have Thank a, you. Yeah. Have a great afternoon. Have a good one, everybody. Okay. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.